Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. For the entire month of February, this podcast is focusing on kombucha, the industry and the people who produce it. Today's guest is no different. Eric Kelklin is the owner of Bucci Call Kombucha, located out in rural Maryland. He used to brew beer, but when he got sober, he realized that kombucha could fill the void, both in what he loved to drink and produce. Our conversation today covers many topics that are critical to public health, including sobriety, community, how to build sustainable food systems, and also how public health professionals and food producers can use good news and positive health information to bring people in around health instead of pushing them away. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric Kelklin. Eric, welcome mm-hmm. to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy that you're here. We've been talking about having this conversation for months at this point. So It's it's almost been a year, maybe. It's yeah. been a long time. It's been a long time. So I'm thrilled that it's finally happening. Mm-hmm. I want to start by getting a little bit of a background on you um, and your relationship with food and drink. Because uh, it seems to me like if you're going to spend so much of your life cultivating a beverage, that it must be a meaningful relationship. So I'm curious to know, what's your background mm. with food and beverage like? That's a good point. My background, well, started with my family. My family used to own a restaurant. I was not the cook at all. But I grew up in that environment. And also, my family, they love to cook. So we always gathered around meals. We always, the grandmothers, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, always had food and talked about it and shared recipes. Um, But for the beverage part, that didn't come from the family at all. So I used to brew beer. I started brewing beer in about, well, 2000, kind of right after I graduated from college. And I brewed for about 18 years, and I got really into it, almost obsessively, where I got every book about hops, every book about water treatment, you know, all the chemistry all behind it, every book about every beer style and why it was and how to make it. So I had this entire library, and all I did is, that was, oh, I almost had a career doing it. I went to work, and I came home, and I brewed beer. That's all I did. I made a season out of it. And uh, I got really good at brewing, essentially. My goal was to make a beer that's called, well, Chimay, Mm -hmm. Chimay Grand Reserve. That was the first beer that I went, what? Oh, my God. This beer is ethereal. It's amazing, right? And that's what I want to make. That was my goal. I never quite got there, but I got pretty close. Then. Alcoholism runs in my family, so I had to stop brewing beer. And I stopped for about four years, I think, three or four years, and I missed it. And I was drinking kombucha at the time because kombucha allowed me to get sober. I could switch to it. It tastes like an alcoholic beverage. It fills you up. It tastes good. It satiated my, you know, my needs at that point. And 
I was like, well, why don't I just start focusing on this healthy drink? It took me a while to get there because there's a lot of, I don't know, generalism with kombucha. We think of hippie people, you know, spiritual people. You take sage, you're going to put it around the whole nine yards, right? you know. And so I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I want to be associated with any of that, right? Uh, that's probably not true at all, but that was in my head at the time that kept me away from it. Um, I don't know if that quite answers your question. Yeah. If I want to go further, I can talk for a long time on it. Well, that. I have follow-up questions. So um, I've had your kombucha, and it's delicious, and we've talked about your background in brewing beer, but knowing that you have this family background with food, it makes me curious about like your palate. You seem to have a very nuanced and curious palate, right? Like more Mm -hmm. so than other brands of kombucha, you're very focused on not just the quality of the ingredients and like the freshness, Mm -hmm. but also these unique combinations. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, do you have any memories of um, just really like being curious about flavor or did that come in more so from the beer brewing history? I think it came more from the beer brewing. I mean, all of us like grew up loving food. And when you learn how to create a recipe, uh, you do have to know what things taste like. You know, you reach for that spice cabinet you don't know anything about, but it's huge. Mm-hmm. So you eventually learn through trial and error about the different flavors of the herbs and spices and the chilies and the peppers and everything like that. Well, beer brewing is the same thing. So you have, I don't know, let's say you have 50 different varieties of hops and each one brings to the table very different aromas and flavors. And you also can work with spices. A lot of the Belgian beers, you work with spices and things like that. So you end up developing a beverage that has many layers. Mm-hmm through the use of spices or different kind of yeast, uh, different kinds of malt, every ingredient you take into context and you evaluate that flavor and how it's going to synergistically be in the beginning. And when you're fermenting though, at the end is even more important. So what might taste bad in the beginning, really, really bad, ends up being amazing at the end. It's quite the Mm. surprise. But I do have the German nose. And so I do have a really good palate as well. And I think I've always had it because I steer away from perfumes, colognes, Mm -hmm. laundry detergent, anything with very strong smell. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's to the point where I can smell someone smoking a cigarette like 500 meters away. It's crazy. Are you a super taster too? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I can pick out the bits and pieces. and. I've never heard this German nose thing, but um, my mom is German and she's the exact same way. Mm. Like the sense of smell is super heightened and like perfumes are a no, unscented detergents. Yeah. So, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. Yeah. It's our it's our it's, German it's heritage. All in your nose, it's really. all on the nose. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good to know. Uh, another follow up question that I was thinking about when you were describing 
you know, making different types of beer. I dabbled in beer brewing um, when I was a teenager because you couldn't drink or purchase beer, but Mm. you could legally purchase all the ingredients. Mm -hmm. So we got crafty and we brewed beer for a couple of years. I'm curious when you're brewing kombucha, I also brew kombucha. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, I at one point years ago bought a starter culture and then um, I've just been cultivating scobies because they just double and there they are. And Mm -hmm. I've never done anything to like change my scoby, except I will sometimes feed it a little bit more green tea one Mm -hmm. month, a little bit more black tea one month to just push it in one direction or another. But from what I know about beer brewing... There are many different types of yeasts that have been cultivated to a very specific end. And when mm-hmm. you use that yeast, you're looking for a very kind of certain flavor profile or you're trying to do a wheat beer and, and the wheat's going to respond better to this yeast, for example. Have you done any work on the kombucha side with um, sort of like changing the cultures to be more specific or is there like per brew mm. or is there just one mother culture that just is who she is? Yeah, it's just one. I have not dealt with like a June a Yoon kombucha. Yeah. I haven't mm-hmm. dealt with that. Um, I know there's different types, but there's just a handful compared to beer. Right, right. Just, just so I haven't. I wonder why. Done it. Do you think it would just be too hard because the kombucha culture just takes on so much from the outside environment? Like it's too wild cultured to. I think you would have to be really good at isolating yeah. specific strains mm-hmm. and then almost making it on your own. Right. You know, culturing up very, very specific species of bacteria and also finding that combination right. together. Yeah. You know. Do you, you do a blend of black and green, right? No. No? Nope. Oh, my gosh. I use all green. Oh. Yeah. That maybe explains the light, refreshing quality right. of your brew. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I I found it took me about eight months to find the right tea. Yeah. And getting back to where just because the tea tastes really good or whatever tastes really good at the beginning really doesn't have much correlation to what it tastes at the end. Yeah. Uh, so it takes a long – you have to f- go through the whole fermentation process to find it. So it took a long time. And black tea – where I'm at with my conditions, with my water profile, yeah, it tastes funky, mm-hmm. like nasty. Yeah, yeah. That's so really I don't interesting. Use it. Like so. the interaction between the minerals mm-hmm. and the black tea, the tannins. Right, and my system, I can only go to about 185. Mm. So tea likes to be, you know, 210. Yeah, or the black tea. Yeah, yeah. That's it does so change interesting. it. But you can also make it with iced tea too. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I have a note in my outline here to talk about metaphors and what you were just saying there about, you know, how something tastes going in, how something starts mm-hmm. might have nothing to do with how it finishes. Mm-hmm. We could just go forever, I think, on that metaphor alone. But I just I just wanted to mention that because it's very beautiful, you know, and I think it's almost inspiring to think that not only is something that doesn't maybe taste good to start capable of transforming into something beautiful, but it's intriguing that sometimes what you need to get the final flavor you want mm-hmm. is a flavor that seems incorrect at the beginning. Correct. Yep. Amazing. Mm-hmm. See what we can learn from cultures <laughs> in kombucha. There's so much to learn. So um, you were drawn to kombucha because you missed brewing. Correct. Yes, I missed brewing. It was a 
it was a big part of my life for a long time. Yeah. You know, it was my creative outlet from work. Yeah. Um, Are you also a cook? Do you cook at home a lot? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do all the cooking. That's awesome. Yeah. Any uh, any favorite like local things? Like, are you a big local produce guy? I know you go to the farmers markets with mm-hmm. your kombucha. Are you picking up produce while you're there? Are you into seasonal? I do, I do. Mostly at the farmers market, though, it's the bread. Yeah. You know, it's the sourdough bread. Yeah. I gotta have it. Yeah. That's what I'm really drawn to. It's the kombucha and the sourdough. They they just want to play together. Oh, it's so good. They're cousins. It's so good. Yeah. That twang. Yeah. Mm. So one day you were sleeping and you woke up mm-hmm. and you decided to start a kombucha business. Or I'm paraphrasing the story that you once told me, but you were brewing for fun uh, as a hobby, a creative outlet. Correct. And, yeah, now yeah. You've, you know, and now you're supplying farmers markets around the region. So talk me through the jump. I think the jump, I actually had some pushes from friends. Mm. They're like, wow, Eric, this is really good. One. There are two sides. One, you should really start brewing kombucha because you got to stop drinking. You're mm-hmm. killing yourself. Mm-hmm. There was that push. And then the other push was, wow, this is actually really good. Um, I know you thought about talking about going pro with a uh, brewery and making beer. Why don't you take that same amount of energy and put it towards the kombucha? So that is what got me there. So I started because I had all that background with beer brewing, it really did not take mm-hmm. long at all. Because, we, again, we're dealing with one s- culture strain right? instead of, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens. Yeah. So I'm like, no, this is pretty easy. Yeah. You know? Uh, so I picked up on it really quick. I started because of the flavor profiles I was used to with Belgian beers and German beers and vegetable beers and all of that, I was able to pretty easily just jump right over. Uh, Also, sour beers. Sour beers are very, very close to kombucha. You Mm -hmm. want to make lambics? Yeah. Yeah. Take that knowledge and just apply it over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with kombucha also, I mean, I find it more approachable and like sanity producing than beer brewing because the acidity of the culture makes it a lot harder to fail, right? Like mm-hmm. I had a few batches of beer where you, I put dozens of hours into oh, like yeah. slaving over it and like all the tubes and the mm-hmm. cooking and the siphon and and then you're waiting for it to, and then it's like, bleh, it's like a dud, it tastes terrible. Um, yeah. Whereas with kombucha, it's kind of like, it's so acidic that it's crowding out a lot of the off cultures and off flavors and I've never really had one that was just like straight up bad, you know. Maybe it's not my favorite mm. batch ever. Uh-huh. Um, maybe it's not quite as bubbly or as fresh as I wanted, but never quite a fail. So um, it's like it is. It's a lot easier and more approachable. So if you've been conditioned to struggle mm. with beer and to mm-hmm. go as like you know journal open like dear diary, you know March first, I cooked it at this temperature and, it, and yes. the gravity was this and. And you're used to doing that, then mm-hmm. the transition to kombucha, it's like a walk in the park. Yeah. Because beer, for example, when you're doing the mash, you know, you have to pick out what grains you want. Right. How you want to crack that grain. Right. And then what temperature rests you want that to be in that mash tun. You don't just throw it in there. You could throw it at 152, but if you're dealing with wheat, especially raw wheat, yeah, you're doing these steps. And it could take hours just to get the maltose over to the boil kettle. 
Right. With kombucha, you make tea and you add sugar. Yeah. Cool it down yeah. as quick as possible, just like you would do with beer, yeah. with a heat exchanger. And that's it. Yeah. You know, but then after that, after you get the primary fermentation done and you got that tartness the way you like it, maybe the pH and the way you like it, you then take it to a blending tank. If you want to change the flavor to include spices and fruit and herbs or whatnot, now this is where it gets complex. So once you're done with the base, it it can take a while. It can take days to get that blend just right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the tricky part. And are you just tasting it along the way mm-hmm. to make sure it's not going in the direction that you don't want it to go? Yeah. Yeah. It's all taste. I mean, I have general recipes. Yeah. But every batch is a little bit different. Right. It's very intimate. It is. That's what I love, but also I think is probably intimidating to the average person about live cultured foods. Like I make sourdough and I love it and it's a relationship and it's very personal, but I have a pretty high tolerance for the fact that like not every loaf will be identical, right? Mm -hmm. But if you try to scale that and take it to a business level, your customer base is not going to have that same tolerance for inconsistency. So um, that Mm kind of brings me to like the entrepreneurship and growing a business question, which is you are very experienced in brewing um, and kombucha is less difficult and detailed Mm -hmm. than beer. But still, any live culture has its own personality. A change in the temperature is going to change it. Mm-hmm. Any ingredient change, even if you didn't mean to change it, maybe your supplier changes, yeah. whatever. Any ratio in tea. Any ratio in tea. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear a little bit about um, just the process of, again, taking it to this professional level and all the things that you have to think through when it comes to producing this product um, you know, beyond tasting it and, and having recipes, like what's the actual relationship with the culture like and, and, and with the brew, like from start to final product, how are you engaging with it along the way? At a commercial level? Yeah. Oh, so I think, um, well, scale, that's mm-hmm. probably the biggest yeah. difference between yeah. a home brewer and a commercial brewer. But that seems like a huge difference, like to go from it hobby is. brewing to It is. So bats. if you if you created a recipe for a two-gallon jar, yeah. it doesn't really carry over to a 150-gallon batch. <laughs> right. You know? Generally, you've got the general ingredients, but now you have to rethink the ratios of it. Right. Okay? And uh, so you, you wanted the, to know the... I'm just kind the of relationship curious, with the culture. Like what your relationship is to have grown it to where you've grown it, much mm-hmm. bigger than a home brewer, but still having that authenticity while maintaining consistency. Mm. It seems like a delicate balance. It is. It is a delicate balance. So I have a special room for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. I even painted it happy blue colors because oh, I love blue. Yeah. All right. I had a but I had a mold issue and I had to clean the entire room, mm-hmm. repaint the whole thing, and I figured, well, I might as well be joyful and happy about it and artistic about it, because I'm I'm pretty artistic. So it's got its own special room that really nobody sees but me, which yeah. is kind of cool. 
I keep it at a very specific temperature, and I also keep the fermentation vesicles um, at a specific temperature. So that carries over some consistency. Uh, the only time that it's really difficult is fruit fly season. Mm. So you have about three months of get these fruit flies away from me. Aside from getting a sealed room, you're going to get fruit flies on your scobies. Mm -hmm. And then you have to decide at what point do I have to now throw all this out? Okay. Um, making a scoby go from a small jar up to a 120-gallon batch, it takes about a month. But really, it's, it doesn't seem that long for something this big to something a little bit bigger than this table. Yeah. Uh, it'll take on any shape whatsoever. I kind of want like a star, Yeah. you know, for a mentor just to have that pull that out and go, well, oh, it's a star. You can yeah. make starfish and whatnot. Anything. You can make anything you want with it. Yeah. Kombucha art. I don't know. Yeah. Scoby art. Then you do have to pull that. Wrapper, if you will, off that fermenter, you know, the cloth. And you got to look at it. You got to look at how it's bubbling, um, the color of it, whether or not it has fruit flies, whether or not it has mold. You have to really keep an eye on that culture. But you can really tell by just walking in the room and the smell. Mm -hmm. You know if it's a happy, healthy sculpture, culture. Yeah. Right off the bat. Because yeah. there, if not, it's not a sweet smell. Right. It's a, it's a dry, uh, harsh smell. Yeah. Right off the bat. Yeah. You know, and also through time, I have a continuous brew system. So I harvest okay. maybe 60% of it. Okay. And then I put fresh sweet tea back on top of it. So once you get that going, I can have another batch in five days. Mm -hmm. It's very quick. Mm -hmm. So I can do about um, 400 gallons a week really quickly. But once... They only go for so long, too, and you got to know that. Right. Generally, when they first start out, they're very fruity mm -hmm. and nice. Yeah. Uh, almost like uh, fruity pebbles, too, which is interesting. And as you keep using it and you keep tasting it, you got to have that memory on, on what it was in the beginning because it will get flavorless. Yeah. Absolutely flavorless. And then you got to start all over again. Yeah. Yeah, so you have to take really good notes. It's beautiful. All the way along. I love the attention to detail that's required. I mean, I think, like, it's just an important practice to really engage with what we eat and what we consume and just everything we do, right? The more attention and intention you're putting mm -hmm. into it, the better it probably is for everyone. So it's beautiful when there's something like kombucha that really demands that, that's really asking for that kind of interaction, um, yeah, I just think it's a very, a very beneficial thing. Mm -hmm. I also, so I want to zoom out a little bit and kind of frame up this conversation because broadly speaking, this is a podcast that talks about public health topics through a personal lens, but I'm the one deciding what the public health topics are, right? So uh -huh. it's not all the most typical ones. I'm looking at public health and I'm saying, well, live cultured foods and the microbiome are critical to public health intentionality around food and um, participating in local food systems are mean, critical. What do you mean by intentionality? 
intentionality, like not just mindless consumption, right? The more people actually think about where their food comes from. Oh, okay. You know, like going to the farmer's market and saying, I'm going here today because I'm going to get ingredients for my next three meals. And also because I like supporting my local food shed. Mm, and mm, also mm. because I know this farmer, I've met him three times now. His family is great. Mm. And I so appreciate the work that he does. That kind of relationship with food, mm -hmm. in my opinion and experience, can only promote health and wellness as opposed mm -hmm. to like, not that the grocery <clears throat> store doesn't have a time and a place. I love grocery stores. I've worked in grocery. Mm. There's so much good that can come from grocery and especially things like food co-ops, right? Yeah. But going to the grocery store after work when you're hungry and tired and like as you're walking the aisles, you're having a bag of chips and you're mm -hmm. listening to a podcast and like a lot of things are going on. Again, that's fine, but it's not the same intentionality. It's not the same intimate relationship with food. So we live in society. We're not hunter-gatherers right now. But we we still have that animal body, right? Like we do come from a creature that did that. So I think that the more we can find ways to engage with our food in a way that comes close to seeking it out, pursuing it, mindfully mm. choosing it, knowing where it came from, knowing where it's going. I just feel like that builds a healthier relationship with food and it's something that's missing. I mean, so many kids who are raised on processed foods, school lunch, mm. subsidized foods, fast food, you know, they they didn't have the experience you had growing up of um seeing a recipe from start to finish, watching someone create a recipe, you know? There are millions of children who don't know what a recipe is or where the food comes from. It's just it comes from the plastic box that gets unwrapped, you know? And I just think, like, we're never going to have a, a good relationship with food in our society if what we think of as food and mm -hmm. as eating is just receiving a, a plastic box full of food, like, processed foods right so oh yeah absolutely well so in my opinion and education and thoughtful you know thinking through all of these intersections to have a healthy public health system you need a system that incentivizes engagement mm. with not just ingredients but with where those ingredients came from what they really are mm -hmm. what it took to get them to your table and what they can do for you once they're there. And who's doing it? And who's doing it, mm -hmm. yeah. So the public health topics that I think most appropriately fit our conversation is anything to do with the microbiome and live cultured foods, anything to do with supporting local food systems and, mm -hmm. and wanting to know who makes your food and where it comes from. And then also, of course, there's the topic that you've touched on briefly around sobriety mm -hmm. and, um, you know, recovering your health through a variety of different ways. One of them being getting off of alcohol and switching over to kombucha. Mm -hmm. So framing it up that way, um, this is a public health conversation yeah. because our entire nation or and or the world need to think about these things. So let's start with sobriety, um, if we can. Sure. Dry January is trendy, and a lot of people participate in it, post about it. There's a trend right now around, like, booze-free booze, you know, alcohol-removed spirits um, and mm -hmm. cocktails. But I've experienced, as you um, perfectly stated earlier, that kombucha by itself is like a cocktail that just fermented itself and it's ready to go. You know, you take mm -hmm. a kombucha, you do a splash of lime and a, a hit of cranberry, ginger, and, like, bam. 
That's a delicious, mm-hmm. complex drink. Um, and it makes something like dry January or dry forever much more fun, interesting, um, exciting. Yeah. So um, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about making the decision to leave alcohol behind, especially because you were so, like, you worked in it. You know, you crafted in it. It wasn't just like, I'm going to stop drinking. You had to walk yeah. away from a hobby. Um, and then how your relationship with kombucha helps to support and, and nourish that. Well, sobriety really wasn't, well, it was a choice for me. But the choice was either life or death. Mm-hmm. And for most people, you would think, hmm, of course you're going to choose life, right? But the reasons that people drink a lot, um, or at least I drank a lot, was to not be present and to, uh, I guess, de-stress, not be present, and almost self-inflict pain, mm-hmm. really. So the idea of actually living isn't even on the table anymore. It's more like how much longer do you want to be here mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And it got to a point where uh, I was really hurting and painful. My blood pressure was sky high. Um, and if I can backtrack a little bit, the story with that, what really got me sober is I went to my dentist And nowadays, they take your blood pressure. And they took it, and they were quiet. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, they're quiet. What? And they go, excuse me, i got to go get another machine. I'm like, what? So then they go out, and they get another machine. They put it back on. They're like, sir, are you okay? And I'm like, I think so. I think so. (laughs) I think I'm okay. I'm just, yeah. They're like, do you see spots, or do you feel like you're racing? I'm like, yeah, that's normal, right? They're like, no, no, it's not normal. You need to go to the emergency room now. You're going to stroke. It was, my blood pressure was 200 over 120. Wow. So my, I was pulsing. My eyes were literally throbbing out of my head for every heartbeat. Wow. And that was really just from drinking for so long. Um, and that made me sober. Yeah. Really. It followed, that started everything, was my wow. dentist, Wow. of all things. A life-changing dental visit. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Have he you gone saved back to life. that dentist oh, and yeah. said, I like, thanks? Oh, yeah, I won't leave. Yeah, I did. That's I awesome. Did. You, I said, you saved my life. Absolutely. So so oh, then the... you made this huge decision yeah. to stop drinking, um, which I imagine when you're drinking that much is not like a, I'll just stop drinking today. That'll be easy, right? Probably a, a right. rough slide. Um, so did you, was it gradual or were you just like, this is it, life or death, I'm done? Yeah, it was this, this was it. I was done. Yeah. I was sick of being that person. Yeah. Really. And you mentioned that a friend had suggested maybe kombucha as a transition hobby, but were you thinking of it as a transition beverage, like something to use as a tool to help support your Mm. gut microbiome, your nervous system, your enjoyment your palate everything during this transition away from alcohol at the time when she mentioned that i took it as an offense Mm. because i was still drinking heavily and how dare you tell me to stop drinking how dare you tell me i have a problem right which only made me drink even more right right so but when i decided to get sober because nobody's going to convince you nobody's going to tell you 
I know, I know you've heard this before, but you have to decide on your own. Right. This is it. I'm changing. And then I had kombucha probably three years prior to that. And I thought it was horrific. I literally had one or two sips of some GT and I wasn't used to it right. at all. I was expecting, I don't know what I was expecting, but as we know, kombucha tastes like nothing and everything all in one. You, you have no idea. It's, it's right. completely its own beverage, its right. own flavor profile. So I literally spit it out and I didn't drink it again for three more years. But then once I started, made that decision to get sober, I'm, I, I reached right for it. And I found it absolutely delicious, filling, and it just satiated that need for alcohol. Because when you are drinking for 34 years, I started drinking when I was 14, uh, and you drink for that long, uh, it's, it is hard to just, you do anything for that long. You mm -hmm. ride a bike for that long. You, you do art, anything at all. It's hard to just yeah. put it aside completely. Yeah. Uh, but the cravings, at least, uh, kombucha just took that, for the most part, away. Yeah, which was nice. It was really nice. I don't think I, w I know, I know, I would not have been able to be sober without it. Yeah, there's no way. That's powerful. Yeah, I think that it's important that that people hear that because I do. Um, well, you and I have also talked about this, like this dream for like a kombucha trail, the same way that there's like a wine trail and a cider trail through oh, different yeah, yeah. towns and mm -hmm. regions. I think it'd be so cool to be, you know, a craft kombucha brewery on one of those trails. So people who maybe just want a break from a day of boozing or want to go out with their friends but don't drink but still want to enjoy a craft beverage mm -hmm. and have that experience of like, wow, like someone took the time to make this and to write down the flavor notes and I'm spending time thinking about these flavors and all the time that went into it, you know, all the good things about alcohol culture, like what year was this brewed? Where did the grapes mm. come from? Like, you know, it would be so great to have that but with kombucha. Um, so anyway, you and I have discussed that right. and it's totally a, a vision. It's on the vision board one day, some sort of craft kombucha wine trail. We'll see. Uh -huh. Um, but I'm also wondering, like, there's of course the physiological side of drinking all the time. So yeah. cravings are one thing, but how about your nervous system? Like in that transition from drinking all the time to not drinking, was that difficult? Like, did you experience any anxiety? Oh yeah, it was hell. Yeah. Yeah, the decision to quit well, turned out to be the easiest part of it. Yeah. Which is insane because at the time that 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 decision that you know, that wasn't the hardest thing. Yeah. But when you actually move away from it and you're conditioned to, to drinking all that, yeah, you don't know how to deal with anxiety. Yeah. Because now it's in your face. Every problem that you drank away is now looking at you straight in the face and you're like Eric man you now you have to be an adult now you you have to actually deal with the reasons why you started drinking yeah and that took a lot of energy yeah so i started doing therapy like almost that next week so i went to a, a addiction relationship therapist which was perfect yeah because i was bad at both <laughs> really bad at both they nailed it right at the intersection oh my god i'm like i need i, I love you so and i 
I'm still going to therapy, yeah. not as frequently. I would go twice a week. Now it's more like once a month or something like that. Yeah. And I really, really need it. feel like I need it. Yeah. That saved me too. Because now you can talk out how you feel. And mostly I think why we go to therapy is to find out if we're normal or not. If other people, because I would always say that, I'm like, does other people, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, why are you so factuated with knowing other people? I said, I just want to know if I'm normal or crazy. And I'm like, you're, you're fine. Yeah. That's a normal response to blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, it is? Yeah. And you go, then you realize, okay, yeah, we, we're all human. Mm -hmm. We all have the same, literally, all have the same emotions and very similar ways we deal with stress and anxiety. Uh, and that was very comforting because now you were able to find a path, uh, some solutions that, that actually existed. You weren't going insane. Right. You were just struggling along to find that key to keep going. Yeah. One of the things that came up in a previous episode was the topic of shame mm. and how oh, yeah. when we're in the throes of shame, we think, <laughs> this thing about me, this trauma, this difficulty, it must have only ever happened to me. Like, I'm the one person this has happened to. And yeah. that makes it so embarrassing and shameful that I should never talk about it. I should just bury it. Once you step outside of that, you realize how insane that is. Like, you're a human having a human experience. Probably millions, if not billions of people have experienced this exact mm -hmm. same feeling or some shade of it. And thus, you should not feel shame and you should bring it to the table and talk about it with your fellow humans and, you know, exercise it, mm -hmm. like get it out, talk through it. But it's like you just said, like we are all kind of looking to see like, am I normal? Like is this mm -hmm. is this weird and is it too weird to talk about? Yeah. Should I keep it to myself? Um, I know I've experienced yeah. that so many times through life. Like for sure, like this thing I'm struggling with is only me who's ever struggled with that. Everyone else seems to do it just fine. So it's a, it's very mm -hmm. important, I think, that that's been like part of your process is dealing with that. Because what I also heard in your story is like sometimes things are just really fucking hard. And mm -hmm. that can't be the reason that we don't do them. Right? Like, yes. This is going to be hard. I guess I'm going to do it anyway, right? I guess I'm going to show up anyway. I guess mm -hmm. I'm going to not drink anyway. I guess I'm going to go to therapy anyway. Like not yeah. because it's easy, not because it feels great to do it, not because I'm able to dissociate and not think about my problems. I'm just, it's going to be hard. And yes, and also I'm going to do it. You know, mm -hmm. I think that that's so important because we have a lot in our culture. We struggle with that. We struggle with sort of just accepting the suck and just being willing mm -hmm. to dig in. It's very natural. It's very natural. Sometimes we always things... pick the easy solution. Right. I've said this before, but this is why I'm very grateful that I gave birth when I was 19 years old, <laughs> because when you're giving birth and you're doing it not in a hospital without doctors and you don't want drugs, there's no way out but through. And so wow. I had this very formative experience at age 19, which was like, yeah, that sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. And what are you going to do? Not have the baby? Like, you're going to have it. There's no way out but through. It's going to suck. Just go forth. And and then, of course, you do have the baby, and there it is, and you've done it, and you feel all that gratitude, mm -hmm. and your body rewards you with all those good neurochemicals. It's mm -hmm. like, well done, human animal. You survived this critical thing. But it taught me something about myself that 
when I see a challenge and it's hard and very scary, that doesn't mean that I can't do it or that I shouldn't do it. It just means that it's a hard and scary challenge. Mm-hmm. That's all that it means. Nothing else. So when I hear you talk about, you know, getting sober, I hear that exact same energy of like, yeah, that's a hard and scary challenge. And mm-hmm. also, I'm going to do it. Also, I did it. So I love that. And I think it's so important. Hmm. It is very hard. Yeah. Yeah. But the hardest things that you work through are the most rewarding at the end. Right. We don't remember the painless, easy things at all. Right. Yeah. That's so true. It becomes trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes formative because you're learning what you're capable of. The trick is not to have the trauma be your identity. Right. Which is very easy to do. Yeah. And I lived like that for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I cried for three years straight. Yeah. Yeah. You probably had been saving them up (laughs) for a while. Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably good. I think think that there is – there's a very important physiological reason that we cry. And I know for myself, Mm. like if I'm just busy and I have like weeks where I just don't have time to cry, I'm a crier. Mm-hmm. I'm a crier. I'm like a, this is a very intense commercial for this product. Isn't it beautiful? I'm a crier. Uh-huh. But sometimes you're busy and you're running around. There's no time to cry. And I, I feel it. After a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it builds up. I could yeah. use a cry. Mm-hmm. So I'm the same way. And, and I think we don't give enough space for men in our culture to do that, like at all. I mean, everyone's busy, but no. there's an extra layer for men where it's like, oh, really? And Every man that I know who, like, knows how to cry is, like, a happier and healthier person. Mm-hmm. It's a release. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Add that to our list of public health topics. Letting men cry. <laughs> and it's a completely natural emotion. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. It's like 10 emotions, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I cry. I cry happy. I cry mm-hmm. sad. I cry deeply devastated. Mm-hmm. I cry overwhelmed. I cry really excited and can't quite put my finger on it, edging towards overwhelmed, but it's excitement. I cry, Mm. right? So tears really, they can do a lot if you let them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't, or if you don't know how to express that or have never been allowed to, where do those emotions go? Where do you put them? Yeah, it can go in very dangerous places. That's where addiction starts. Yeah. 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 You you, um, bottle up everything. Right. Yeah. And you can't live with it. So you, if you can't get away and you can't live with it, you're only, you have two solutions. Uh, one is kill yourself. And yeah. the other is be numb with some kind of drug or alcohol or something right. just to go on. That's, right. that's really it. Right. Yeah. So not to like put you on the spot and force you to like, you know, be a spokesperson for sobriety. But if somebody were listening and they were like, I don't know, not sure where to start with drinking less or, you know, is there any kind of uh, words of wisdom you'd want to give to them besides, you know, drink kombucha? Mm. (laughs) I think sobriety is a very personal thing. So it would be hard for me to give advice. It depends how, where you are along that addiction road. Yeah. Uh, The advice, I would definitely say therapy is extremely important. Mm Mm-hmm. Some people might find AA useful. Uh, I did to some extent, but I couldn't go all the way through it. 
I couldn't get past step two, believe it or not. Which one is that? I couldn't believe there was a higher power. Oh, yeah. Um. I couldn't. I could easily say I have a problem and I can't deal with it. Or yeah. I don't, I, I'm just incapable of dealing with my own problems. Yeah. I could easily say that. But then you have to trust that there's some thing or even yourself that has the strength that's going to pull you up. You know, that higher power. Right. You focus all that energy. You're like, well, my higher power is going to get me through it. And I, I couldn't get past it. Yeah. And uh, no matter what I did. So, but what does help with that is you listen to other people's stories. So I went to listen kind of like this, kind of like today. The trauma that folks went through or even what they experienced that day. And how they dealt with it or didn't deal with it. Um, it was really some beautiful moments, yeah. actually. Yeah. You know, I can't really talk about it. You're not right. supposed to can't. Of course. Yeah. Know. But they were real. Right. And again, like intense. getting rid of the shame. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Almost everything was about shame. Right. Guilt. Right. Resentment. Anger. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. All the things was, they tried to keep down. Yeah. And it was intense because even people, they, people would blink in and out of the meeting, meaning they overdosed. They never came back. Mm. It was really uh, depressing, too. Yeah. Um, but every time you walked out of a meeting, uh, you, you, I don't know, you kind of felt like a new person. Mm-hmm. Especially if you shared. That was very hard to do. Yeah. Without crying too much to even say anything. That was, it's very hard. Vulnerability. Oh, yeah. You were open, completely open. Yeah. A lot of times, though, everyone picks up on that energy and they would come over and give me a big hug. Yeah. Yeah. Which is lovely. Well, this is a very easy sort of transition into another topic that is critical to health, but I also wanted to talk about with you, which is the topic of community. And of course, that word can mean a lot of things, right? Kombucha is a community in and of mm-hmm. itself. It's a colony, a symbiotic okay, yeah, community, sure. right? Yep, yep. Of bacteria and yeast. Uh-huh. Um, a local food system is a community. A co-op. Right? Yeah, a co-op or a mm-hmm. farmer's market, you know, buyers, uh-huh. sellers, people is, coming definitely. and going, sharing in the bounty of the region. A place like AA is a community. It's a place mm. to go to rely on your fellow citizen for through the ups and downs um, and to share experiences. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of wanted to talk through that. Like it's sort of a big, not even really metaphor, but just like many layers of the same topic, which is the ways in which community is critical to health, right? And we saw that in the pandemic. So many people became less healthy for a variety of reasons, but one mm. of the predominant ways was isolation, mm. social is- isolation. So no one could see each other. People became isolated, depressed. They drank more than ever, right? Oh, wow. We had huge yeah. skyrocketing yeah. alcoholism during the pandemic and other drugs and junk food. And, um, you know, when you're not able to go to the park because they're closed down and you're not able to go to Christmas dinner because no one's hosting it this year because the mm-hmm. pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. People, uh, I think the U.S. Surgeon General sounded the alarm last year that loneliness is worse for your health than smoking cigarettes. Yeah. 
And now imagine smoking cigarettes alone. I mean, it's just, it's a double whammy. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. So I really think it's an important thing to talk about. And not that it's not talked about, because obviously if the Surgeon General is mentioning it, then it is coming up here and there. But on top of loneliness and the um, perils of loneliness, just kind of digging into what community is why it's so powerful and so important, mm -hmm. and how that's true on a lot of levels. So let's start with the microbiological level, right? Okay. Let's start on the easy level, okay. which is kombucha. The little stuff. The little stuff. Um, let's talk about the interaction between the culture and what you feed it, right? And the community that develops there. So you mentioned this a little bit already, but mm -hmm. you start with tea and sugar, and then you add this SCOBY um, or mother. Can you talk a little bit about the SCOBY and and um, and what she is and, and how she forms and how she then transforms things? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to get into anything too scientific at all. Yeah, of course. Because honestly, I didn't dive down too much either. My my background is a scientist, yeah. and um, I didn't want to bring in too much of work mm -hmm. to my passion, so to speak. So I, I purposely leave myself a little bit ignorant on things. Let's put it that way. Um, and that, that's what makes my kombucha different too. Yeah. I purposely don't look at other people's stuff yeah. or do much research on it. At You're all. vibing it, right? I am. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. So again, mine is a continuous brew system. So that SCOBY could be there for six months or eight months or something like that. The the actual part that does all the work is underneath this mat that looks like and feels like flesh. Yeah. It, I always it's like a it's like has the same feeling as your of your earlobe with little bumps on it almost. I was afraid of SCOBY when yeah. I first saw it. I when I first saw a SCOBY, I got like a chill down my spine. So people can change. I now like commune with my SCOBYs, yeah. but the first one I saw I was like, ah. I don't show it yeah. to people. Yeah. You know, unless they actually absolutely beg to see it. I won't take them into the fermentation room. I was like, you'll never drink this. If yeah. you see this, you'll yeah. never drink it. Uh, thank God I have stainless steel fermenters because I don't really have to look at Your it. Your secret the time. is safe. Yeah, but the upper part is really just a pellicle, and that keeps a lot of the funk, the bugs and the fruit flies and the bad stuff from getting in, and it protects itself where the actual bacteria, and then underneath the bacteria, there's like yeast, you can little strands of yeast. Yeah, it keeps it really safe. And that, that part is what takes the tea and the sugar. So the yeast eats all the sugar. Then the bacteria comes in, and theoretically the byproduct of eating the sugar is alcohol, ethanol. The bacteria comes in and eats the ethanol, keeps it down, right? But you can easily change that ratio to where it makes more alcohol than you would like. So it's not that simple. But generally... The bacteria then eats the alcohol. So they have this symbiotic relationship helping each other. You know, the yeast breaks certain things down, and the bacteria is like, hey, thanks for cutting that up for me because now I can eat it. And it takes that tea and breaks it down to all the little components of the little acids and the enzymes and the vitamins and all that stuff. 
And that's where the magic happens. Now we're able to take all those pieces that are now chopped up and take it in and use it in our body, which is amazing. And that's what fermentation is all about, mm -hmm. is getting all those, extracting all those nutrients and special things from the food that normally um, we would eat and it would just go right through us. Right. Right. Or maybe our microbiome would try to chew on it, but it wouldn't try. come in quite as quite as easily. No, no, it wouldn't. We don't have two stomachs. So, you know, some animals are able to get more out of fermenting inside of themselves than we are. Right, right. Yeah, it really is magic, though. It It is. Um, a SCOBY to me is, it is magical. And that's what keeps... That's what keeps me interested, and I wonder if that keeps other brewers interested. I mean, that's aside from the flavor, um, the beer brewing and the kombucha brewing, it's the magic of the fermentation because it's 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 like opening a Christmas present. You really don't know. I mean, you have an idea what you're going to get, but you're you don't know. You have surprises all of a sudden, and there's there's some things that are just out of your control. Yeah, you know, no matter what you do. Yeah. And that's what keeps you going because it's a surprise. It's a present every time. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely vibe with that. And, you know, I'm I'm with you on the struggling to believe in the higher power. But, you know, kombucha, <laughs> the mother, she's a little powerful. I'm just saying there's maybe powerful. there's a spiritual element there. And she's kind of she's directing us. She's keeping us excited. She, we want to feed her and make her happy, you know. So maybe we're just being guided along by these microbes, well, we and we need her, something... and she needs us. Exactly, symbiosis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's one community that you inhabit is the community of the kombucha culture. Then another community that you inhabit is your sort of local slash regional community. You sell your product at farmers markets. So talk to me a bit about that community. How did you get involved in farmers markets and um, and where do you where do you serve? So I've only been in business selling now for about two and a half years. Uh, the first year was, well, it's still a shotgun effect to see what sticks, who's going to buy this product. The community around of which is interesting, okay, getting into this and selling, I had no idea that some of the, actually the best part of this is meeting the people who buy it from you. Mm -hmm. I actually was blown away by it because now you're helping people. And it's pretty incredible. You go from being alone in a brewery to helping people. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's astonishing. The farmer's markets, I I started up last season. I did four, um, kind of alternating and on different days. But I had one in Waynesboro, one in Boonesboro, one in Charlestown, and one in Frederick. So I, I had zero life. And then in between, I was still supplying all the stores and restaurants and all the other places with my kombucha as well and going to work. So I had no, zero life. And I knew that. But it's like when you go to school, you – you know that you're going to be giving up a part of your life for something better in return. So mm -hmm. that's that's what happened. I had six months of just going like crazy. The it's interesting. You at the farmers markets, you talk to people, they talk to you, they you feel like a bartender. They come up and they tell you their health problems. And they ask usually, can you help me with this? And I'm like, well, 
yeah, I think I can. You know, I think if, if your gut's healthy, everything else will pretty much follow through. And if it doesn't, it tastes good anyway, you know. And then they come back and they're like, Eric, I want some more. Whatever I had before is gone. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, I feel much, much better. So I started getting a lot of folks that were ill uh, of all ages, but a lot of senior citizens, too, mm. which I was surprised. Well, and we know that enzyme production really diminishes mm. in elderly populations. So I have to assume that one of the beneficial mechanisms of action there is that you're helping with enzymatic activity mm. in their digestive tract. They definitely crave it, yeah. and they need it. Yeah. Usually their wife drags them to it, but... Do you know to, to what extent you're ever, like, crowding out soda in someone's life? It's... No, I don't know. Uh, there are people that come and say, listen, I want to I cut back on my sugar, and I mm -hmm. think this will help. There are, there are definitely a percentage of that. Yeah. But those that are still drinking soda and addicted to that sugar, they won't... The touch. palate is. They will not. No, no. Yeah, they're like, ooh, it, is this no. straight vinegar? It'd be the comparison, somewhat dramatic, would be, you know, taking a shot of maple syrup compared to taking a shot of apple cider vinegar. Yeah. You know, that extreme. Yeah. And the folks that really have that sweet tooth, yeah, they don't even approach my booth. Yeah. At all. And you can tell. You know, it's interesting. You can see how healthy people are at the farmer's markets, and you can almost guess, almost, who's going to come to your booth. Yeah. But generally, those that are really unhealthy or unfit or eat poorly, they won't They won't come to your booth at all. Right. Which is interesting. And I think, I mean, part of that for sure is palate. Mm -hmm. And part of it, I think, is like what you experienced with like the oh kombucha. That's for weirdos and hippies and yeah. people that burn sage at their doorway and people who do yoga. Like, that's mm -hmm. not for me. Um, one of the most exciting things to me in the last decade is just how far and wide kombucha has come to the point that when we were doing advocacy work with KBI uh, for the Kombucha Act, mm -hmm. anytime we got a staffer who was under 25, we had to do no education. <laughs> like, Oh, sure. Like they, they mm -hmm. had been doing advocacy for years and they would have staffers who were whatever, 30 to mm -hmm. 25 who had been around. And you'd have to start from square one. What is kombucha? Mm -hmm. Any staffers who were like recent college grads, you know, in the last five years, they were like, I love kombucha. I get it after Soul yeah, Cycle yeah. every week. Like it's a big part of my routine. So yes. kombucha has come a long way in the mainstream. I mean, I see it at gas stations now. You do. Starbucks now has Brew wow. Doctor Kombucha in cans. I'm on the country. I don't see that. At the checkout. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So kombucha, it's it's made it's, it's made a leap. It has. And you're right. The younger generation definitely knows about it. Yeah. My biggest hurdle and why I have the slogan of I make kombucha for people that don't like it or never had it. Yeah. It seems like a ridiculous slogan, but it's true. Because where I'm at, at least out yeah, out in the country, uh they don't know what it is, mm -hmm. and they're honestly they're afraid of what it is. So a big part of selling my kombucha is educating what it is yeah. and why they should drink it. Now, if I sold Coke, I wouldn't have to do that at all, right? <laughs> right. So I, along the same lines, I had to convince them that it actually tastes good. Yeah. You know, you should just give it a give it a shot. Just taste it. And luckily, yours does really taste good. So mine tastes mm, kind of bold, I think, bold flavors, 
the reason I use green tea is because I don't want that funk. Right. Some people love the funk, but that's a very small percentage of where I'm at. Yeah. Right? I don't want to scare people away. I want to bring them in. Yeah. So my flavors are fresh and complex, actually, and multi-layered, just like I would make beer. Yeah. Exactly. I want to double down on that thing that you just said. You said, I don't want to scare people away. I want to bring Mm -hmm. them in because that is so important in the public health conversation right now and especially public health nutrition. I also want to point back to something that you said about when you were drinking too much and you had friends who would say, maybe you should drink less. And you would say, how dare you? And then this thing about, you know, people who maybe are living more rurally, um, who just aren't part of the big city, you know, fast paced lifestyle culture, moving a mile a minute, being afraid of something like kombucha. Mm -hmm. It's such a challenge to find the exact right way to communicate a new idea about health Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't cause people to feel defensive like you experienced, right? Mm -hmm. How dare you? This is how I live, right? I can handle it. Right. I can handle it. I'm fine. Fine. Maybe you're too weak to drink soda every day, but like I've been doing it since I was 12 years old and I'm fine. Exactly. You know, a few root canals here and there, but otherwise completely fine. Right. I'm a functional alcoholic. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, like legitimately, we all have these things that become part of our identity. And I think food and beverage are one of the most intimate relationships that we have because Mm. we put it inside of ourselves and then it turns into us. Right. So that's that's very intimate. That's gratifying. And a lot of it has to do with how we were raised and what our families cooked and what did our grandma bake for us every weekend. Right. Like Mm -hmm. people have these stories around food. So to find a way to approach people get them interested in even considering shifting their habits, their consumption, while being really mindful to not only not scare them away with the way that you're talking about it, but Mm. also making something that's, you're like, listen, I might like the funk. Like, I'm a beer brewer. I've been Mm -hmm. drinking funky for 20 years, but I'm going to brew a kombucha for people that don't drink kombucha Mm -hmm. because I want to bring people in. I just think that everyone in public health could learn from that. I think that everyone in the food Mm. and nutrition space could learn from that because there's a lot of like well-meaning finger wagging that Mm. I think just falls on deaf ears Mm -hmm. when it comes to eating healthier, right? Rather than this is like I'm passionate about this, right? I have three kids and we have probably what many people would consider a limited diet in the sense that like we're gluten free mm. and one of my kids has some allergies. So she's like free of more things, but the whole family, like we're gluten free. We don't really consume dairy mm-hmm. um, except in the summer when we go to the, 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 there's like a goat farm down the street from us and we eat goat cheese and like play with the goats. So, you know, they're cute. Who could resist? Um, Got to get your calcium at, at the goat farm from the goats. But aside mm-hmm. from that, pretty much dairy free. And then like, were like a lot of things free, like food coloring and like food additives. And pretty much I just make everything from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not like I give my kids like just steamed broccoli and boiled chicken breast, like that nobody, no kid would tolerate that. Like no. my kids get homemade sourdough crust pizza and, you know, they're eating freshly made bread and I bake beautiful cakes for their birthdays mm. and I've developed like a sweet potato and tahini brownie recipe. I'm and exactly, come on down. There's <laughs> a full functioning restaurant mm. here. But there is, there's this important like 
place of compassion, which I came to as a mother, right? I have kids. I want them to eat well, Mm -hmm. but I refuse to have children who feel deprived every single day. So how can I figure out how to bring them in as opposed to push them away by saying, that's junk. Don't eat that. You have to eat healthier. How can I find that fun middle ground? And I love that you're doing that with kombucha, that you're finding that fun middle ground where you're like educating people, Mm -hmm. but not scaring them away. And you're not like forcing them to drink a funky brew, like get over it. You'll like it eventually, right? You're like, hey, here's this. You're not good enough to drink it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, hey, this is palatable. So I don't know. I I just really wanted to like put a spotlight on that because Mm -hmm. we need that more in public health and health communication, not just saying to people, ugh, like lose weight already, you know, like move more, eat less and just eat less, move more, like, you know, figure it out. Mm -hmm. We need more of this, like, how can we make it fun? How can we make Mm -hmm. it approachable? And how can we talk to people about health and about maybe improving or shifting their habits in a way that's not an attack on who they are as a person, right? Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Right. But and, you're doing that work. Well, humor, that's how you do it. Yeah. I mean, look at my business name, Bucci Call. Yeah. Everybody smiles when they reads it. Yeah. So instantly when you smile, when you laugh, yeah, that pressure is gone yeah. immediately, right? So that brings them in. The names of some of my recipes are... They're hysterical, you know. Mm-hmm. It might start at innocence, but it goes all the way up to Hibuchi Mama because I couldn't name it Cougar. <laughs> um, things like that. But that's my sense of humor. Yeah. So I'm always on that edge of too much, you know, of that and just enough kind of a thing. Yeah. So like the, the full Monty. I mean, that's a great one. It takes the whole garden into consideration, but it's the full Monty, which is it's great. It plays on itself really wonderful. Yeah. We... Uh, me and my buddy Dave, when he comes and helps me down in, in, in Frederick, he's an awesome salesman. But we, we work off each other, and we're not serious. We're never overly serious. We're there to have fun and make people laugh. And, oh, by the way, there's kombucha here. You might want to try it. It's for free. And if you don't like it, we'll give you your free money back, you know, kind of a thing. What a deal. It's a great deal. Uh, but it's the humor yeah, part of it that really... I think can bring them in. Yeah. Yeah. And the lack of seriousness, the, the, the fact that I don't stress really the health part. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there when they ask about it, I'll tell them about it, but I don't stress it. I would like, just taste it. It yeah. tastes good. Yeah. So even if the best medicine doesn't taste good, right. And you know, it's good for you. You're not going to drink it. So right. let's make it really palatable and tasty and interesting right? for them to drink it. Then they'll get healthy. They'll get hooked on it Yeah, and go. Yeah. And like, what does it mean to people if you say like, oh, this is going to improve your gut health, if you can't qualify that for them? I'm like, yeah. why are you talking about my gut? Right. Why are you talking about my poop? Right. I mean, you're like, why? you're going to poop great. They're like, I'm at the farmer's market. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me. I'm holding a baguette. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we usually say, you know, this is really good if you had base- basement issues. You know, you bring it on that way. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, something like that. But you definitely don't talk like a doctor or anything 
Right. Nor should you. I'm not a doctor. Right. These these statements are not verified by the FDA. Kombucha has not been proven to uh-huh. treat, prevent, or cure right, right. any illness. Just so you know, Bucci Call is not making any unverified claims. <laughs> However, there was recently a study that came out. Georgetown University craft um, kombucha gave them kombucha. You probably mm-hmm. know Tanya from Craft. She's a DC brewer. She know. does. She's part of KBI, so she's been. Okay. You probably bumped into her. Probably. And. They did a study at Georgetown where they showed that regular consumption of kombucha helped lower blood glucose levels in type 2 diabetics mm-hmm. and helped improve glycemic control after postprandial glycemic control after a meal. Kombucha consumption helped. Wow. So it's not, you know, a drug, but it's good to have these studies. And of mm-hmm. course, the gut is doing all kinds of wonderful things. When it's breaking down food, so making the gut healthier tends to improve other outcomes. And putting these nice healthy acids and polyphenols and bacteria and yeast into our gut help to improve the conditions in there in general. Mm-hmm. So it's all very exciting. It is. Now, I just mentioned one more community that you belong to, which is the community of kombucha brewers. And um, it's a very diverse it community. Is. We met at kombucha con mm-hmm. the yearly kombucha event mm-hmm. both of us probably unlikely to be there right like it was a huge journey for both of us but oh yeah we happened to both attend at the same time same place we met mm-hmm. thank goodness and oh. you know i mm-hmm. mean here we are serendipity serendipity exactly because like you live not too far but i probably wouldn't have been like wandering no. out in rural maryland no. and discovered you it would take many more years to exactly mm-hmm. but here we are so kcon brought us together and one of the things that I loved about KCON, first of all, I still pine. There was a kombucha there, mm. I think from Switzerland, in a brown glass bottle. Mm. It was like the champagne of kombuchas. It Yum. was so dry, and it was not a hard kombucha. Uh-huh. It was so dry, it was so crisp, but it still had that fruitiness, right? Mm. Citrusy, a lot of high notes. I think they had a grapefruit flavor as well, and they had a ginger. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, there was the kombucha bar set up and sampling everything, and I was like, screw this sampling. Like, yeah. cracked one of theirs I'm and just walked this. off. Yeah. Like, this is the oh only God. one I want. I still... Probably why I never got it. <laughs> I think about it. I was hoarding them. But... um. There was such a diversity of kombuchas mm. there. So there really is like a kombucha for every palate. I remember this one woman, I tried her kombucha to my taste as someone who loves the funk and loves the tart and has been brewing for a long time mm-hmm. and frankly would drink vinegar happily. Mm. Her kombucha to me was like pure sugar, like mm. almost undrinkable. Mm-hmm. Um and she was like, I brew it this way because I like it this way and my customers like it this way. And I was like, yeah. that's valid, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I would love to hear your experience of like belonging to the community of kombucha brewers. Have you learned anything from other brewers that you've taken with you into your business? Or have you um, learned anything about like what you don't like from tasting other brews that you've brought into your brew? Hmm. That's a good question. The I don't do the a lot with kombucha brewers because there's not a lot of us. Yeah. At all. I think there's what five or eight in the state of Maryland. That's it. Yeah. So but I did have a gentleman, uh, Sean from Pooch Booch, right? So he came up and he's starting his business and our connection is it's really hard to get the license. So we're mm. kind of helping each other out there. 
and we learn a lot as well. Um, for example, he's trying to do a canning line, and eventually uh, I probably should do that too. And so he's wrote, wrote the SOP on that, and you know he's 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 helping, and so we learn that way. I don't have to do that. But in terms of the actual KBI, I only want that once because it's very expensive, yeah, and time consuming. It's I don't know. Three and a half thousand dollars, you know, when you're said and done. Even the uh, competition that I entered, it's five hundred dollars a pop. You won something. Yeah, I, I won that. a bronze for some. I think the fruit category. Yeah. For the full Monty. Yeah. Because they love the beets and the carrots and the right. turmeric and all yeah. that. They kind of dug it. Yeah. So that was cool. Yeah. And it was really cool to talk to everybody at that conference. I did learn a lot. But it is expensive. Yeah. And then so over here, out in the real world, in Maryland, there's a handful of us. And we rarely ever talk to each other. In fact, I think there's somewhat of a competition. Mm. Like, yeah, there's somewhat of a competition. So it's it's somewhat secret between a lot of folks. Yeah. You have to want to be open, decide to be open. But that leaves you vulnerable. But I'm used to that. Right. Anyway. You've mastered vulnerability. Too much. Yeah. Way too much. I have to tone it down. <laughs> boundaries. You got to build that pellicle. That's, yeah. Um, I have very few boundaries. Yeah. That That's what gets me in trouble. Yeah. You can't trust everybody. That is true. That's true. I mean, it's a really naive thing to say. Well, but you know what? But it's true. Again, I'm going to bring it back to the metaphors here. Because first of all, when it comes to competition, of course, any ecosystem has competition, mm -hmm. but also commensalism, symbiosis. Mm -hmm. And there are many niches to fill, right? So like your product, which I love, it fills a different niche than, let's say, Wild Bay Kombucha's product, which right. I also love. Mm -hmm. So one person in one condition, one day, looking for one thing. Even if they know I like kombucha, they may turn to each of those products for different reasons under different conditions. Mm -hmm. So I think like allowing for many niches to exist and for them to be inhabited by the best person to or the best product to inhabit them is really important. And then I also think like any healthy, resilient community, whether it's a gut microbiome or a town, thrives on diversity. We can't mm. be homogenous. We can't have every single company having whatever, a ginger raspberry kombucha that tastes exactly the same and everyone bottles it the same and it's available at the same locations. Like, who cares, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's just redundancy and it becomes this weird competition. But when we allow for cultural diversity and diversity mm -hmm. of cultures, we become healthier, more resilient, more vibrant, and more sustainable. You know, you need diversity to protect yourself against collapse. And I think that's true, again, of any community, but also of the kombucha industry. I think the reason I love like KBI and the whole kombucha brewers community is that it is this ecosystem mm -hmm. of people and businesses and economies that have grown exponentially. There are some big players in the field who dominate in certain ways, mm -hmm. but they also set the stage and make it possible for others to enter, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot of education that mm -hmm. GTs has done for us over the last, I mean, 15 years. I think I was buying 
I think I was buying kombucha right after high school at Whole Foods. I think I was buying mm. GT's kombucha. So I, that was 20, wow. 20 years ago. Wow. Wow. You were so Ooh, small. I know. I was just a baby. <laughs> just a sweet little 17-year-old baby who was like, hmm, kombucha. And I'm glad that I found it. But the amount of education that you had to do 20 years ago to get someone to no. try kombucha, having those dominant you know, mm. super organisms of, of of a player in the industry does set the stage. It does. Um, and it opens up new niches for smaller players to play in. So I, I sort of feel like we're it all does. in it together. We are. Um, so, of course, but again, competition is natural. It's competition, it's, yeah. It's totally natural. So if you actually want to go out and sell to a brewery or a restaurant, right? Uh, you got to be careful what territory you're in. Because right. if they're already buying a kombucha, it doesn't matter if yours is better or worse or whatever, different. Right. right. Uh, they won't buy it. They have a relationship with the existing brewer. Right. And then they won't break that. Loyal. They're very loyal. Yeah. Very loyal. And the only time you can actually get in when you have that loyalty is that they pull out on their own. Right. And they leave that empty, that niche empty. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So there's that level, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I have two questions left for you. One is very zoomed in, and the other is a very zoomed out. So I'm going to start okay. zoomed out. My zoomed out question is, you're a food producer, beverage producer, but you know, broadly speaking, you're part of the food and beverage system, and you're out in the country. You're surrounded by farms, and right now in this nation, the food system is very challenged, right? Mm. Farmers are struggling. People are struggling to understand how food affects their health. Um, farmers are struggling to bring healthful foods to market, to mm -hmm. tables, because the foods that we subsidize are the least healthy of mm -hmm. the foods, right? I mean, sugar is subsidized. Tobacco is subsidized. Corn, soy, not these specialty crops that happen to be the things that are actually recommended mm -hmm. that you consume on a regular basis. Yeah. So I know you probably don't think of yourself as like an expert in food systems, but just as a producer, as a boots on the ground person who's at the farmer's markets, mm -hmm. who's who's living this life of a small business owner, producer, feeding your community, what do you think might be done to improve our food systems, whether that's at a very small scale, like how can we make farmer's markets more accessible maybe? To a larger scale, like, do you have a sense for, are you, like, when you're at the market, let's say, are you hearing things from farmers about, about what they're struggling with? Are you hearing from consumers about where they're struggling? Like, do you have any inside information from being so intimately involved in the food system as to what the problem is, where it lies, and mm. what we might do at a community and or policy level? to address it? Well, usually when I'm at the farmer's market, I'm always behind my table. So I only have about, you know, 15 minutes before and 15 minutes after, you know, after to talk to somebody else. The But the consensus is, it's just the regulations are brutal. Mm -hmm. The fees, the regulations, the licenses, the permits, all of that is really what makes it difficult to compete Honestly, because we're treated at the same level as a big um, grocery store. Right. But we're not. And it's, it's, um, 
it's difficult just to even get your foot in, let alone about um, making people more healthy all around. Um, so I can't really answer your question because I, I don't, that's about as far as I can get right now. It's people just struggling to survive. Yeah. 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 And you're not the first person to say that I've, I've spoken with farmers and I'm going to be putting out an episode about the food system and, mm -hmm. and what farmers are struggling with. And I was really expecting in those conversations to hear a lot of environmental things, you know, soil quality. Mm. And, and of course that is there. 85% of what they talked about was the economics of it. Things like being a small scale producer, mm -hmm. but having to have a USDA inspector at your facility every single day. Yes. Things like being a small scale producer, but having to pay all the same permits and licenses and fees that a larger scale producer has to pay. And then, of course, with things like kombucha, like the fear of the excise tax that might fall on you if someone tests your brew and it's drifted. You know, if you're on the shelf at Whole Foods mm -hmm. and your brew drifts above whatever, 0.5 percent. 0.5, yeah. So it's interesting yeah. that, of course, there are all these ecological challenges facing farmers. We hear a lot about global warming, and this is important. And of course, there are economic sides to that as well. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important to double down on what you're saying and say, like, this is what farmers are saying and what producers are saying and what small business owners say is like, it's the economics. Like, we want to produce healthy things. Mm -hmm. We want to improve the food system. But Kraft can afford to open up a new facility and churn out mac and cheese that's dyed fluorescent orange. And mm -hmm. I can't even afford to hire one person because right. I want to pay a living wage. And right. what's a living wage these days? hundred bucks an hour <laughs> like in, oh this, in this economy, right? Right, right. So it's just like, it's economic. That's important. I, I do think so. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the health department isn't there to help you. Right. Nor anybody else. Yeah. They're not there. They're there to take a chunk of money from you. So you almost feel like, uh, as a small businessman, you feel almost like you're surrounded by piranhas yeah. the entire time. Yeah. And oh, by the way, uh, I got to make something too and sell it kind of right. a thing. It's well, that, and of course- That is really interesting yeah. as an entrepreneur. And like the game is rigged because the bigger you are, yes. the more it's easy to like have a really influential right. relationship with the inspector and know what the rule book is and, yep. you know, pay someone like Ecolab a large sum of money to come in and handle all of that for you and to do yes. test inspections with you and right. all that stuff that as a small yes. producer starting out, how would you even know? Right. Yeah. I mean, all the lab tests that you have to do for kombucha is yeah. very costly. Yeah. So, for example, the permit for Maryland just to even ask for any change of any kind is $200. Wow. Anything. Yeah. At all is 200 bucks. So that I probably spend, I don't know, six, 800 bucks a year just on that, just to make changes. Wow. And then the lab fees, uh, Maryland requires what's called a 702 or 705 ISO, some kind of certificate that costs $20,000 for a lab to get. There's only a handful in the entire United States. So I have to send everything to, I think, Kansas. Wow. No, Oklahoma. In order because to get the tested. lab itself. The lab is so has expensive. that certification, wow. right? And then your alcohol testing and so on and so on. So you're spending, I don't know, $600 to have it tested. Wow. Um, and this isn't even nutritional labels. Now we're talking 
a lot. Yeah. Right? Um, that is very hard on a small entrepreneur. When you realize that, oh, I got to test all my, I want to get nutrition labels for all my recipes, right? Because people are asking, how much calories are in here? How much sugar is in here? How much caffeine is in here? And you're like, well, shoot, I don't really know. Yeah. It's low. So now I'm in the process of getting nutritional labels, but I have to put aside about $3,500 to get that done. And that's a that's a big chunk of change yeah. for a small person, small business doing that. Yeah. yeah. So it is economics. Um, one other thing I was really surprised about, getting the license to be a food processor. You know, we're, we're not a brewer. We fall into the food processing. So I don't know. I think when somebody says food processing, I think of a giant warehouse making uh, tuna. Yeah. You know, that's what I think of. So we're under the same microscope as that. But you ask, okay, there's, I know, there's East, there's the kombucha companies in Maryland. I said, can I get an example of their SOP? And they're like, no, no, absolutely not. So every individual person, every business has to create an SOP from scratch with no help from anyone else. Now, it would be really nice if I could get online, get an SOP, get what other businesses has learned right. and move on from that. And of course, it's going to vary state by state because of the way our government does it regulation. Is. So it's not as if KBI could have one course that teaches every brewer across the country how to do this, right? Like, Because yeah. I know they do some education, but some there's so much variety. There is. But I mean, the way you clean stuff, right. it's going to be the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? Things yeah. like the sanitation, and right. that's going to be the same. So yeah. do I really have to rewrite all of this? And they're like, yeah, you do. Right. You do. Yeah, the sort of like if someone, I mean, obviously, you know, it's good that there are regulations that protect consumers mm -hmm. from getting poisoned on a regular basis. Although according to the news that I've seen recently, people are still getting poisoned on a regular basis from things like granola bars and, you know, romaine yeah, lettuce. Right. So whoopsie doopsie, it's not a foolproof system. But broadly speaking, glad those systems are in place. Glad we have the goal of mm -hmm. not giving salmonella to most people. That's a good goal. Mm -hmm. But how can we put structures in place that boost small producers or create pilot grants or funding mm. or there's some kind of sliding scale fee that you pay as a percentage of your income nice. or profits, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because it really is like this huge hurdle and barrier to entry and barrier to growth. It is. Because how can you invest in new equipment and the future of your business mm -hmm. if you're constantly having to pay 200 bucks just to, right. oh, I, I used um, different, I used mosaic hops this week instead of citra hops. Yeah. That'll be $200 to change right. the label. And then, like you're saying, people want, people are accustomed to, and, and rightfully so, seeing nutrition facts. They want to mm -hmm. know more about what's going into their bodies. Good. I fully approve of wanting right. to read labels. But that's another cost. So finding a way to make all of that, like if we were to round right. up all of the like basic costs that could drown a small producer in the first five years yeah, and figure out a way to sliding scale it. I mean, I think we have a small business association, correct? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I'd always get, well, did you get a hold of the, the SBA? Did you, get a, did you call them up? And I'm like, yeah. 
you get crickets. Yeah. That's what you get. Yeah. And you look at their grants and things like that, and they're just, they don't apply. Yeah. You or like, I mean? do you ever like read a grant application and it's like, you have to submit like a 10 page essay about why oh, yeah. you're the greatest person ever born and why your thing is the right. most valid thing ever done. And it's going to be about eight weeks um, just to do all the paperwork. And then mm-hmm. everyone's competing for it in the whole state. And the if you win out of this pool of every single person competing, it's a thousand dollars. Like those grants, yes. it's like, is that? It's a full-time job like, to apply for them. It's crazy. It is. Uh, and usually, which I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing, but it's usually um, like a women-owned, women-owned business, yeah. minority. They, there's like a little catch. Yeah, you're there's a little something bit there. white and male. Right. So I don't, I get diddly squat. Right. There's no white male grant. Kombucha is a mother. So maybe there's like a mother grant that you maybe. could kind of sneak in on a technicality. I'll support you. Yeah, it's really tough. Yeah. They had the COVID grants for quite a while, but. Right, right. You had to prove that you lost money due to COVID. You had to prove that you're already a business. Right. That doesn't apply. Right. You know, nothing seems to apply. But anyway, it would be nice to have a real actual working small business. Maryland SBA. Yeah. We would like to hear from you. Please comment below if you work for or have ever worked for or (laughs) benefited from the Maryland Small Business Association. Drop a comment down below because we want right. to know if they like kombucha. Do they want to try some? His is very delicious. <laughs> and once you try it, you might stick around for a laugh, maybe a yeah. few grants, you know? Maybe. A few classes on. They could bring in some of the inspectors, correct? Perfect. And then go, yeah. this is a properly written SOP. Yes. These are the components I want to see. Yes. That'd be brilliant. Uh, and these are the hurdles you might you know, run into, something like that. It's sort of like doing your taxes. There's that meme, that like joking meme that's like um, your taxes, You, no one will tell you how to do them. Mm. No one will tell you how much you owe, mm. but they know how much you owe. Mm-hmm. And if you don't guess correctly, you go to jail. Yes. <laughs> it's like, so you won't tell me what you want from right. me, but if I don't get it right, you'll turn down my application, but you won't tell me. Like you can't just tell me exactly so I can deliver on it. Nope. They won't tell you. So it is- It's a trap. <laughs> Sink my battleship. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You keep throwing it out there, and every once in a while, they're like, yep, that's it. You're like, why didn't you tell me? I just spent three months on this. Right. Yeah. It is like that. Well, this is a very easy transition to my final question, um, which is, you know, what's next? And you've only been doing this professionally for two and a half years, so you're kind of a baby brewer. Total baby. Basically a toddler wandering around. But you make a delicious product and people love it and you are passionate about it, which I think is a critical ingredient to having a successful product in business. Definitely. So, I mean, considering all the hurdles we just discussed or not, do you have any kind of uh, vision board for where you want to be with the brew? Like the thing that you said about bringing people in, which I spent so much time pointing at because I think it's beautiful. I think that scaling that would be amazing mm. for community health, for nutrition, for individual health. So do you have a, a vision for scaling that kind of energy, that that plant? You mean in making people feel at ease to drink the kombucha, that kind of energy? Yeah, like that intersection yeah. of like, obviously it involves growing your business, but also like you'd be just growing your ability to meet interesting people and feed them a thing that makes them feel good and Mm -hmm. bring people in instead of pushing them away. 
Right. Well, I've had thoughts of actually making a tap house where I'm at. Yeah. So I can take the cons of where I'm at, middle of nowhere, right? A lot of people find that on the weekends, going to the middle of nowhere is quite the destination. It's true. You know? So if I, that was actually my first thought was to get the gardens going and get a nice place where people can hang out, families can hang out and drink the kombucha. So that's, you know, that's still on the table. That's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It's a big expense. Um, Right now, I don't know, aside from, there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of ideas. I don't know what's going to stick yet, right? Uh, Farmer's markets, I'm only going to do one this year. That's it. I realized one does really well and the others do okay. So being a single person, uh, the only person at this job, I have to decide what I'm going to put my energy towards, you know. Um, If I decided to just do farmer's markets, uh, maybe I need to put money towards a van with taps on the side. I could do that. I got money for that. But is that really going to pay out? You really don't know until you do it, which is unfortunate. You know, maybe cans are the way to go. Well, in order to start doing cans, we're talking about... Um, a lot. We're talking about 80 grand probably just to walk in the, just, just to get enough to do that. Yeah. Um, so right now I'm just trying, I'm not trying to think too far ahead. It's literally like a year ahead. It's like, okay, what piece of machinery can I get that's going to make me more efficient? Um, yeah, essentially, because I just want to make enough to survive on. My original idea was this is my gap job for retirement. I want to retire early or earlier. Um, and this needs to make enough money for me to live on, you know, and if I can do that, that to me is a success. And as we grow, we don't really know what's ahead, right? We learn every year, we learn every month, every week. So it's hard for me to say, oh, I want to be, I want to have a giant warehouse over in Hagerstown and so on and blah, blah. I want to brew 20 barrel batches at a time and so on and so forth. Yeah, you can say that, but you change your mind so often. I don't even have that kind of a big goal yeah. at all. It's really keep pushing along. Get as many uh, customers and clients as possible that you can get, really. It's increased my customer base. Mm-hmm. That is my goal right now. Awesome. I'm not going to replace GT. I'll yeah. tell you that. Uh, <laughs> no one but who will. knows? But yeah. who knows where it's going to go? Yeah. So if I partner up with somebody who has knowledge that I don't have that we can excel in, maybe the marketing part, maybe the social media part, uh, there's a lot of empty positions I have, let's say, that could easily uh, propel me to a much, much more successful business because it's just me. Yeah. You know, I can only do so much. Well, folks, keep an eye on this space. (laughs) You heard it here first. I think, I mean, again, your product is delicious. And I think sort of like a kombucha for the sober curious, kombucha for the kombucha Mm. curious, kombucha for the craft brew enthusiast who doesn't want to be drinking every night, Mm -hmm. right? Something that fills that niche, that fills that void, that allows for the experience of taking pleasure in a ferment that has been lovingly and intentionally crafted and vibed, you know? Oh, definitely vibed. Very much vibed. 
while not having to have it be an intoxicating experience, at least in the traditional sense, right? Mm-hmm. It, can, it can still mm-hmm. be intoxicating and joyful. Euphoric. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I love the vision for a tap room. Although that van with the taps on the side know, sounds right? cool too. And if you do that, I'm hiring that. you for a birthday party because I want right. a kombucha tap bar. So there's bar, that too. Right? Driving around town doing Wedding like- Wedding events, all that. Uh, what's it called? Like, you know, street parties, festivals, uh-huh. any kind of like oh, yeah, community truck, event. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. like food truck kind of thing. Sure. You see a lot of food trucks and then it's like, what drinks do you have? And it's like Coke, Diet Coke, Sprite, bottle of water. I know. What if there was the kombucha truck? Right. It's a lot easier to set up. And you can make Just little kombucha it. frosé, you know, little kombucha mm-hmm. frosty drinks. I'm your kombucha first floats. customer. I'm yes. You, those are delicious. We need kombucha floats. We need a kombucha like ice cream truck for the community. Kombucha, you can do kombucha anything. Kombucha jam. The question is, if you were a kombucha ice cream truck, what would your music be? Oh, probably reggae. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> probably. Perfect. Yeah. I can see it now. Let's all just take that vision with us <laughs> into the future here. We can close out mm. this episode just picturing we're going to have a vision board here. And there's Eric. He's driving his kombucha ice cream truck to mm. the festival down the street after a morning at the market and the reggae is playing <laughs> and life is good. Life would be good. I can't wait. I'm excited. I'm excited for whatever the future is. But if that ends up we envisioned it here first <laughs> okay you, yes the vision was manifested we're sending it out credit. into the world mm-hmm. awesome well thank you so much for coming and joining me today i really i feel like we covered a lot and i feel like you we did. not only got to know so much about you and your product um but also just about like how kombucha and local food systems interact with public health so thank you for going on this journey with me well thank you i had fun Me too. Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. For more information on me, Marion, please visit my website at marionflaxman.com. For more information on my guest and his company, Bucci Call Kombucha, please find the links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>